As we start a new year, in fact decade, many of us have made New Year's resolutions. A very common resolution is to start exercising or get back to the gym. Pretty much everyone knows that exercise is good for you, yet many of us still struggle to fit exercise into our busy schedules. Some people feel that they lack the resources to maintain an exercise routine, and frankly, some people just dread breaking a sweat. In fact, only about 20% of adults in high school age youth meet the current federal guidelines for aerobic and muscle strengthening physical activity. Experts have developed guidelines on the amount of physical activity we should all be doing to stay healthy, but it's obvious that very few of us are following them. We thought it would be informative to do a podcast episode in which we talk to one of those experts in order to answer the question, how much exercise do I need to stay healthy? We will discuss the wide ranging benefits of physical activity, as well as the types, volumes, and intensities of physical activity that are required to bring about those benefits. I'm your new host, Brian James, from Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. Many of you have listened to the podcast and may be wondering uh, why I'm speaking instead of our previous host, Matt Fox from Boston University. Well, Matt Fox is going to be working with Haley Bannock on a new episode uh, sorry, excuse me, on the, a new podcast for the Society for Epidemiologic Research called Serious Epi. So be on the lookout for that in 2020. Matt has done an unbelievable job hosting Epidemiology Counts, and we would like to thank him for his service. I am honored to be stepping in to fill his shoes. Even though Haley is going to be co-hosting Serious Epi with Matt, we have her back on the podcast today for this conversation about exercise. Welcome back to Epidemiology Counts, Haley. Thanks, Brian. I'm glad to be here today, and I'm excited that you're taking over as the host of this podcast. Thank you. I'm uh, particularly excited about this episode because a little-known fact about me is that although I'm an epidemiologist, I have an undergraduate degree in physical education and also a master's degree in kinesiology, so I'm really interested to hear what Peter has to say today. Well, that is great. You seem to be the perfect co-host for this topic. Um, so as Haley mentioned, we are joined today by a physical activity expert. Haley, can you introduce our guest? Sure. So uh, today we're joined by Peter Ketzmarsik from the Pennington Biomedical Research Center at Louisiana State University. He's a professor at LSU and runs the Physical Activity and Obesity Epidemiology Laboratory. He also holds the Marie Adana Corcoran Endowed Chair in Pediatric Obesity and Diabetes. Dr. Ketzmarsik is an internationally recognized leader in the fields of physical activity and obesity with a special emphasis on pediatrics and health disparities. He also recently served on the 2018 U.S. Physical Activity Guidelines Advisory Committee for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So we thought he'd be the perfect guest for today's show. Welcome. Hey, thank you. Yes, thank you so much for joining us, Peter. So as many of us know, January is the busiest time at basically any gym or workout facility. Gold's Gym reports that their memberships increased 40% from December to January. Snap Fitness said they expect approximately 100,000 new members to join across the USA in January each year, accounting for 15% of total annual new memberships. A spokesman for Snap Fitness called January their Super Bowl Sunday, so to speak. However, many people join gyms and then they stop going sometime after January. So uh, we're going to address those issues. And um, why don't we start out with this question, Peter? This is a very broad question. Um, so maybe we'll keep it brief, but why should we exercise? Uh, briefly, what does the research tell us about the benefits of exercise? Well, that's, a, that's really a big question. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, and it does have a big answer. Essentially, we, we have about 60 years of epidemiological research showing that physical activity results in a lower risk of many chronic diseases, such as uh, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, several cancers. In addition, we know that people who exercise tend to live longer. And sedentary behaviors, on the other hand, are associated with a higher risk of premature mortality. So beyond just the joy that people get out of exercising, you know, there's a lot of health benefits associated with it. Right. And uh, I didn't mention this before, but I am a personally an Alzheimer's researcher. And I know that one of the main things that we tell older adults about how to 
um, hopefully hold dementia at bay is to stay physically active. Um, so dementia is another risk factor that um, exercise definitely can affect. Um, so that's a, that's a great overview, but we're gonna spend most of today talking about this question. And maybe you can shed some light, Peter. How much exercise do we really need to stay healthy? Can you tell us about the recommended guidelines for physical activity? Uh, I think people are confused often about how much exercise they actually need to be healthy. Sure. Well, the, the current recommendations, which, which just came out last year, actually, in 2018, recommend between 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity per week. In addition to that, we should be trying to uh, engage in some muscle strengthening activities or more vigorous type activities at least two days a week. So for most Americans, hitting that range of 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity will really put you in the zone for health benefits. Awesome. Can you tell us a little, uh, give us some examples of what moderate physical activity would mean? Sure. Well, it's really getting to a point where you, you have difficulty speaking to the person beside you. Mm -hmm. um, it's where, you, where your heart rate increases. So things like brisk walking, that, that's, a, I think, a pretty good example. If you were going out for a walk at about four miles an hour, such that um, in about half an hour, you'd cover two miles, that's kind of the, the moderate level of activity. We're not talking about real vigorous sports here, such mm -hmm. as playing basketball or running a marathon. Mm -hmm. We're just talking about getting out, getting your heart rate up and your breathing rate. And uh, these are the kind of things people typically associate when they think about exercise. And so a lot of my research is focused on older adults and in aging populations. Are the recommendations uh, similar in those groups as well? Yes, actually they are. The, the recommendations for Americans apply broadly across the entire spectrum of uh, adulthood. However, there are just some, uh, some things with older adults. Most older adults may have chronic conditions, uh, chronic diseases. So we really ask that they check with their uh, primary care practitioners um, and other healthcare providers, you know, before they undertake exercise and to really just kind of titrate their exercise level based on their pre-existing conditions. Right. That, that's a really good point. So, um, you know, I often hear a myth that people are too old to lift weights, for example. Um, could you please disabuse us of that? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You know, muscle strengthening activities are actually key particularly in the older uh, adult age groups, they promote the, the, the deposition of muscle mass and also help maintain bone mass. And these things are just critical in older adults for warding off type two diabetes and for warding off things such as osteoporosis. So these types of muscle strengthening and bone strengthening activities become even more important as people get older. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that both Haley and I work with older adults. And, and um, I, I think I can speak for Haley by saying that we find it baffling that people seem to think that at some point in life, it, it just gets too hard and you just kind of, you know, you shouldn't be doing such intense activity. But actually, it's more important as you get older to maintain that. So thank you for uh, talking about that. Um, yeah. Haley, you want to ask about some of the guidelines? Yeah, so something I'm also always interested in is how guidelines get developed. And I know there's epidemiologists, you know, that, that study this in particular, a shout out to Lisa Bodner on this topic. But guideline development in and of itself is a fascinating topic. And there's so many factors that to consider. So I know you were, or I think you were involved in some way in the development of the guidelines. You know, where did these numbers come from? Where, where did you choose them from? And did you have to balance sort of... Uh, what is the best number to recommend with what is realistic for people to do? Would you rather see people do 300 minutes of moderate activity a week? Is that the best number? I, I would like to hear your comments on the, that topic. Well, in the United States, the guidelines were developed by quite a comprehensive process. And as such, we didn't have physical activity guidelines for Americans until 2008, actually. The very first guidelines came out. They were just revised, as you mentioned, in 2018. The second edition of the physical activity guidelines have just been released. So the, it's, it's quite a comprehensive process where they, the Department of Health and Human Services puts together uh, an expert panel 
In this case, it was 17 experts from across the country with expertise in different aspects of physical activity, epidemiology, and, and biomedical uh, issues. And we spent two years wow. amassing all of the evidence of associations between physical activity and health outcomes. So we did this essentially by going to the scientific literature and conducting systematic reviews of all the most up-to-date evidence. From here, that evidence informed a series of key questions that we had related to you know, physical activity and health. And from there, we put together a report that went to the government. And then from there, it was actually the government itself that developed the guidelines. So oh, it's wow. kind of a two-step process. The, the expert panel of scientists, they put together a, a report. It was, I think, so over 700 pages long outlining all of the evidence and they turn that over to the government and they're the ones that actually make the guidelines. Oh, wow. So how close was the government's guidelines to what you recommended? Well, actually in this case, it was very close. So okay. they, they really followed the evidence, which was great. And they essentially just turned that evidence into more of a public facing document, something that the, the lay public can really understand. Cause you know, mm -hmm. As scientists, we get all hung up in odds ratios and hazard ratios, yeah. confidence intervals, correlations. So it's really important that the you know the, the science is there, but then you you take that evidence report and then you convert it into a guideline document, which the yeah. the public can actually read and understand. That's right. That's the whole point of this podcast, actually. So <laughs> we're trying to get beyond the odds ratios and the p values. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so I wanted to follow along with this because I think Haley, um, you know, in previously talking about this, you, you asked some really good questions and you actually maybe disabused me of a notion where I thought that these guidelines were the minimal requirement necessary to stay healthy, but that, that may not be the case. So is this, and Haley, you just went into this a little, is that like the sweet spot that we're aiming for um, this guideline or is it really like, you know, you should do at least this? Is there too much exercise? Does it drain your energy like some people might think? I'm not going to name any names. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be president. Um, anyways, yeah. So, um, but yeah, can you shed some light on what these guidelines actually mean? Yeah. I think I think it's important to realize that it, it is a range. It's, it's 150 to 300 minutes. And if you do greater intensity activity, more vigorous activity, mm -hmm you could get away with, you know, 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous. Mm. So oh. it's kind of titrated based on the level of intensity. Right. But what has really come out in the new version of the guidelines is that we get our greatest risk reductions from going from sedentary to doing something. Right. right. So although 150 minutes is a target that we want people to get to, mm -hmm. we really emphasize that getting out and doing 15 minutes or 20 minutes a day that really reduces your risk of premature mortality and all of these diseases. So the idea really is that we try to get people to a, a point where they at least get off the couch mm -hmm. and get some activity. That's, that's where the greatest risk reduction comes from. Gotcha. So we were going to ask you about that. So sedentary behavior really seems to be the, uh, you know, the boogeyman that we're really trying to, um, to get people to, to get past. So, so if you saw a curve, I would assume, you know, the highest level of risk comes in that sedentary group and then it just kind of drops off precipitously when people just start doing anything. And then you see kind of, you know, reduction as you get more and more and more vigorous and do more and more activity. But really it's that, that first part of the curve that has the precipitous drop in risk. Absolutely, right? absolutely. Yeah. If you look at that curve, it drops off. And actually by the time you get to 150 minutes, you've already achieved about 70% of the total risk reduction. Hmm. Oh, wow. That's crazy. 70%. So, wow. So you say when you reach 75 minutes or so, um, so why do the guidelines say 150 or 120? Oh, no, you said, sorry, go ahead. No, what I said was that by the time you get to 150 minutes of activity, you've got 70% of the absolute. Oh, excuse me. Okay. Right. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. Of the total okay. risk reduction. And it tends to then plateau off all the way up past 300 minutes. Right. So okay. that's one reason we like to have that upper limit is we, you know, you do get health benefits by going beyond that. Mm -hmm. But for most people, that 150 to 300 minutes is associated with the lowest risk reduction across mm. the board. 
And that seems to be from a public health perspective, if everyone was in that range, we would see great reductions in right. you know, the population of attributable risk for all kinds of diseases. Gotcha. So that, that's really the target. Um, and you know, it, it does differ from individual to individual and what that individual's goal is. So for some things, like I'll give you two examples. For the reduction in risk for some cancers, you may be trying to target higher physical activity, more like 300 minutes. You're, you're aiming for that outer range of the, um, of the guideline. And also for weight loss maintenance. So for people who have lost weight and they're trying to maintain that weight loss, the evidence seems to be they should be at the outer end as well. Mm -hmm. Those people do a lot of activity to maintain their weight loss. Gotcha. So, you know, uh, it depends what you're going for. For general risk reduction, though, that range of 150 to 300 seems to be spot on. Now, is that is the weight loss component that you just mentioned? Um, is that because what I've heard, and I again have no idea if this is correct. So, um, but is that people who are maybe obese that their body's metabolic system, you know, kind of has a new baseline? Right. So then when they lose the weight, their baseline was um, at the level of uh, where they were before they started. So to, to keep that weight off, they have to create a new baseline uh, level of activity to, to stay there. Is that correct? Well, to, to some extent it is. Okay. Um, the, you're right, though. Really, once you lose weight, it is, it is difficult to keep it off. Mm -hmm. We see that time and again. You know, people can come into the lab and they'll definitely lose weight. Mm -hmm. But once they get back out in the real world, they tend to accumulate weight again. So it's kind of a lifelong endeavor when you think about weight loss. It's not just a one, one shot deal. Yep. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that raises a good point uh, related to our New Year's resolution idea. So right. I think it's often the case that people make New Year's resolutions to lose weight. I'm gonna you know, eat healthier, exercise more in the new year. Um, I think some people might be under the impression, I know Brian and I spoke about this earlier, is that um, exercise is less important than diet for weight loss. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that's true? Well, to some extent it is. And that's for weight loss. Right. Like just mentioned. So weight loss is all about disrupting your energy balance, mm -hmm. yourself into a negative energy balance. And for most people to lose weight primarily through exercise, in order to disrupt that energy balance, they have to do a whole lot of exercise. Right. It's a lot easier to cut 1,000 calories out of your diet than to introduce 1,000 calories of exercise. Mm -hmm. So, but let me just uh, take a step back and say that physical activity will reduce body weight for right. sure. You know, like I said, I can bring people into our lab. They're going to exercise an hour a day, 500 calories a day. And if we can carefully monitor what they're eating, they're going to lose, they're going to lose weight. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. What happens though, in the real world, people go out and they exercise, but then they tend to compensate. Right. Mm -hmm. So they may eat a little bit more because mm -hmm. they exercised, uh, maybe as a reward for that exercise, or they just... <laughs> maybe hungrier because they're hungrier because they just burn calories yeah yeah so you know in a carefully conducted situation exercise is great for weight loss but it's right. that translation into the in the real world where people run into trouble right and it's not that the exercise isn't helping the energy balance it's that they're compensating by eating more or they may also compensate their activity such that they do the exercise but then the rest of the day, they're more inactive because of that. Oh, mm -hmm. So it's so all these those, yeah, yeah, substitution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I remember when I was taking physical activity or uh, kinesiology classes, they always they often talked about this chocolate chip cookie substitution effect where people, there's a strange psychology where somebody feels less bad eating chocolate chip cookies because they were on the treadmill earlier, <laughs> right. which obviously would not be productive for weight loss overall. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, weight loss is one of these very tricky things. We, we don't do a very good job of it in the general population, obviously. Um, you know, uh, 
even from a dietary perspective, just think about all the different diets that have come out in the last 60 years in the United States, all the popular diets and the medical diets. And what is the one thing that's changed in the United States over that time? No, obesity has gone obesity up. People have gotten fatter. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so you can't say the diets are all that effective either. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so let's talk about that a little. So obviously we know at the high, so obesity we know is a epidemic, if not pandemic um, in our society, and obviously has um, a lot of negative health effects. But, um, you know, if you come back to more the, the middle range, so, uh, you know, if we're not talking about the extreme end, we're talking about maybe the average American, um, you often hear things like, you know, well, wait, you shouldn't focus so much on weight. You know, if you're trying to get healthy, you know, you should go to the gym not to lose weight, but to actually get healthy. So can you talk a little bit about that? Is there a distinction there? Um, can you get healthy without losing weight, um, et, et cetera? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, a lot of people tie those two very much together, you know, exercise and their weight or how they look or how they perceive themselves and how they want to look. But really, physical activity has an independent effect on health across the spectrum. So really, when, you're, when you think about exercise and physical activity, we shouldn't be tying it to weight per se. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as I mentioned, people who exercise, they're healthier, they have a lower risk of, you know, a ton of chronic conditions. Um, as including dementia, like you mentioned. So the focus really shouldn't just be that they want to exercise because they want to lose weight. However, if you go out in the population and did a survey, which people have done, the number one motivation for people to exercise is to lose weight. Right. So somehow we have to change that perception that physical activity is just good for weight loss or something like that because it really has such broad wide-ranging effects right um and then also you know uh, if you actually do do muscle training then you're going to be building muscle muscle weighs something so you may be countering you may be losing fat you may be gaining weight and your weight may actually stay the same but your your body composition is more healthy yeah absolutely right um great so actually that's a point I wanted to turn to is, and we've, we've briefly touched on this, but um, I wanted to talk about maybe the, the, the difference between a, the benefits of aerobic exercise as compared to weight training and muscle strengthening exercise. Um, is one better or worse for your health? Are they best in combination? Um, I should tell you full disclosure, I know this is going to come up at some point on this podcast that I do CrossFit. Um, so I strongly believe in, um, in weight training. I think that that's part of the main reason I've gotten healthy in the last five years. Um, I also believe in high intensity, uh, vigorous activity, and we'll talk about that in a second. But um, I do believe that there's the combination of the weight training and the aerobic exercise that, that has benefits. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. You know, most, I'd say the vast majority of the science around physical activity and health outcomes has focused on that aerobic component. Mm -hmm. In particular, uh, the leisure time physical activity. Right. So, you know, all of this epidemiology we have over the last 60 years are based on questionnaires that ask people, you know, how much they walk and how much they, they run and play basketball. Um, and, and so it's really about that aerobic activity where we have a lot of evidence. However, there is uh, quite a bit of emerging evidence around muscular training or muscle strengthening activities and health outcomes. For many years, it was kind of studied more or less from the perspective of athletics or from the perspective of the aging adult, because we know that this, you know, these muscle strengthening and balance activities help in the prevention of falls and fall-related injuries among the elderly. Um, however, we do know a lot more now in the last 10 years that, you know, the promotion of muscle strengthening activity really helps in the, in the maintenance of um, blood glucose levels and the prevention of insulin resistance and the prevention of type 2 diabetes. So certainly, you know, when you, when you look at it in total, there are great benefits 
to muscle strengthening activities. Um, and some studies certainly show that that combination of aerobic plus resistance training does even better for some outcomes, like mm. for example, insulin resistance, than just either one alone. Mm -hmm. So this combination type training, really, um, we need a lot more research in that area, but certainly all indications are that it, there's great benefits there. I've heard uh, that there is almost like a synergy between the two, because if you actually, if you, if you build muscle, you actually burn more calories when you're doing aerobic exercise. So um, it kind of becomes this, this positive feedback loop. Can you talk about that? No, absolutely. You know, the, the muscle mass in the body is one of the key determinants of our resting metabolic rate. Mm -hmm. So if you can increase that, you certainly have an advantage. It's not as great as, as what some people say, you know, if you go to the, the commercials, the infomercials on TV, <laughs> you seem to think that you're going to increase your metabolic rate by tenfold or something by going on these machines. <laughs> right. um, that, that's not true. But it, it is certainly true that, you know, you increase your metabolically active tissue and it also, it also allows you to undertake more vigorous activities mm -hmm. and therefore kind of get your recommendations in in a shorter period of time in some cases. So... You know, there really is nothing that I see where we would not be recommending that, that form of activity. Do you worry about injuries? <laughs> oh, oh, the old CrossFit injury question. Here we go. <laughs> uh, I, can't, I can't speak to CrossFit uh, <laughs> itself. I've never studied that. But I do know that there have been studies of, um, you know, uh, muscle strengthening activities. And when they're done... In a, in a supervised way and they're uh, safe, they're really, I don't think the injuries are that much greater than you'd expect from any form of physical activity. Right, um, so the, the issue is not necessarily the vigorous activity in and of itself potentially, but if you are sedentary, potentially jumping into that right. high intense level, that mm -hmm. might be where you see some of the issues? The weekend warrior phenomenon. Yeah, yeah exactly, and I, I, I do believe that's true. Um, and I also believe this weekend warrior phenomenon is not just around the strengthening activities, it's also aerobic as well. Mm -hmm. I think some of the cardiovascular accidents you see are from people that go from zero to 60 in mm -hmm. three seconds, mm -hmm. um, right. rather than taking their time and, and progressing at a, a reasonable pace. Right. So I think that's important that people realize. Um, you know, if you're going to undertake physical activity, for most people, it's perfectly safe and uh, you'll have great health benefits, but for some people that have a pre-existing condition, it's always great to check with your physician ahead of time just to uh, make sure that it's safe for you to undertake that activity. Right. Um, can we talk a little bit about the um, intensity versus time trade-off? Um, you know, I, I, I will say that one of the reasons that I got into CrossFit is because I found out you can do a workout in seven minutes. <laughs> And uh, get really, really healthy and not have to go run for two hours. And uh, that sounded wonderful to me. So, um, you know, th that's kind of the idea of these high intensity interval training exercises. Well, one part of the, the idea is that you, you, you trade vigorousness for time so that you, um, you really tax your system in, one sh in a short period of time to get the same benefits or maybe even more. Um, you know, I know that when you talk about the guidelines, you, you have to talk about both of those aspects, right? You have to talk about the time that you recommend and the level of vigor. Um, but is there kind of like a two axis sliding scale where you could find the sweet spot of both? Yeah, I believe that's true. And just the way the guidelines are written, um, where you would undertake 150 to 300 minutes of moderate mm -hmm. or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous activity that's in there. So it does take that into account that if you're vigorously active, you know, it basically counts for a double, <laughs> essentially, right. the, mm -hmm. the number of minutes. Um, the, the most recent Physical Activity Guidelines Committee did a systematic review of high-intensity interval training, and they did find great benefit to that. So right. there is something there, um, you know, in some areas such as uh, insulin resistance, and improvements in glucose control, they find great benefit from this high intensity interval training. Hmm. So it, it's something that's on the horizon. 
And that, that's what the, the guidelines committee likes to do. They like to look out for these, these hot new trends out there mm -hmm. and, and provide guidance. Because mm -hmm. really that's what the public, pu public is doing. That's what the population wants to, mm -hmm. to know whether it's safe or not. Right. So they tend to go off in those areas and, and take a look at the evidence and mm -hmm. see what's there. And the so evidence- that is one area I think that's up and coming. Up and coming, and there, there seems to be. So you're saying there seems to be evidence that interval intense, high intensity interval training is good for you, um, assuming you're not coming into it with an injury or with a health issue that you could tax. So uh, that's good to know, because yeah. uh, I have to be honest, I didn't know when I started whether <laughs> the evidence was supporting it or not. So that's wonderful to hear. So um, speaking about hot new trends, uh, <laughs> you know, and it's the holiday time, yeah. many people now wear um, Apple watches and Fitbits, you know, these fitness trackers that a lot of people have and they're popular as gifts. Um, what, what are your thoughts on these tools? Do you think they're useful tools in helping people uh, maintain or, you know, achieve uh, specific physical activity levels? Yeah, I think they are. I think, I think they can be motivational, uh, particularly in the beginning. We, we do see that the novelty of these items tend to fall off mm -hmm. after a while once people have them. But we've certainly used them in studies that I've done where it, it helps people develop a target so they understand where they should be. Okay. You know, so we, we typically like to say, you know, let's, let's figure out what your baseline is in terms of steps per day or whatever. And if someone is, so we have them wear it for a few days. And if they're around 5,000 steps per day, we, we start them off by trying to get 2,000 more. Okay. You know, if they can handle that, then we go for another 2,000. So it's all about their baseline and trying to increase. And is there a, a goal, a step? You know, sometimes I've heard that 10,000 steps is, you know, the target. I'm not sure what the science is behind that, but do you uh, ascribe to a particular cut point like that? Uh, not really. That, you know, that 10,000 steps per day, that, that's been around for a long time. Mm -hmm, it has. And originally it came, from, it came from a company that was developing a pedometer. I think it was in Asia somewhere. And it was more of a marketing gimmick. Yeah. Right. You know, 20 or 30 years ago. There was no evidence for that. <laughs> um, in fact, if you kind of figure out that people should be doing about 30 minutes of moderate intensity activity every day as a target to, you know, to add up to 150 per week or so. Um, really where they, sh where that equates to is around 8,000 steps per day. Hmm. Oh, interesting. So hmm. if you actually do uh, regression equations in the population and figure out how much that equates to, it's about 8,000 steps per day. Um, and you know, when you look at some of the populations around the world who are very active, they're doing 12,000 to 15,000 steps per day, you know, when they rely on active transportation and they're working in agriculture and these sorts of things, people get quite a bit of activity. So the guidelines committee actually looked at this. We tried to come up with some targets perhaps for steps mm -hmm. per day. Yeah. And we were unable to do it at this time. We just don't have enough studies that have used that as an exposure, you know, uh, steps per day in a pedometer, looking at all-cause mortality or the development of diabetes. You know, we don't have those types of studies yet. But they're starting to appear. Mm. You know? So I think we're going to see a lot in the next 10 years, um, a lot of new evidence related to these new devices. Yeah, and I think Apple actually is sponsoring a, a really large study. Is that, is that right? Looking at uh, measuring all these steps and all that? Well, they got all your data anyhow, so. Yeah, right? Yeah, they've got the data. <laughs> um, yeah, they may be. I haven't heard of that. I haven't heard of it. I think it's called the Apple Heart Study. Uh, oh. and I, So uh, I think the outcome is some cardiovascular related events, but I believe um, part of what they're looking at is number of steps per day. But uh, I'm not 100% sure on that. Okay. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, but that'll be perfect data to answer those questions. Yeah, people are doing some innovative things now. Um, you know, there was that group last year that published the study of, uh, it was physical activity measured through the cell phones. Mm. And it was in a, a number, I think something like 20 countries. And they were able to look at uh, physical activity and obesity in all of these different countries based on the cell phone steps. So I think these kind of, these devices that are out there like Fitbit and the Apple watches and cell phones, 
you know, they have access to a lot of data. Yeah. And so I think if people can uh, figure out how to use that data for research in an ethical way, that I think we'll see some great uh, advances in that area. Right. Yeah, I mean, there, there's the data collection aspect, um, but there's also the motivation aspect. I mean, as Haley talks about, you know, many people buy the Fitbit, for example, just to make themselves get more active. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there's research about the psychological effects of monitoring yourself, um, whether that's that works or not. I can tell you myself, I got a jawbone up a couple of years ago, mostly to monitor my sleep. And I found out that I was sleeping worse because I was worried about what my sleep was going to look like the next day. <laughs> I was like, oh, this chart's going to look terrible. Um, and then I wasn't sleeping because of it. So I ditched the jawbone. But um, it probably doesn't have the same effect with exercise. But I was just wondering if, uh, and also, you know, there may be there may be an effect a lot like joining the gym with New Year's resolutions where you first get one of these devices, you're monitoring yourself, you're, you're making sure you hit those 10,000 steps, and then it just kind of trails off after a while. So um, any thoughts about whether, you know, monitoring yourself um, is good or bad for keeping up with exercise? Well, I think, uh, in terms of a, a behavioral therapy aspect to it, that's one of the kind of key components is definitely self-monitoring of health behaviors, whether you're trying to change your diet or increase your physical activity, or even uh, for weight loss, you know, monitoring your weight daily or weekly. I think these are kind of the key uh, cornerstones to behavioral mm -hmm. therapy. So um, I think there are advantages to it. Right, with, with the caveat that sometimes it can be very frustrating for people, I would think, and I know that a lot of people that I know, when they start monitoring and they're not seeing the benefits they, they want to see, they get frustrated, and maybe they just stop going to the gym altogether. So, um, you know, it's kind of hard to know how to counter, you know, how to get the benefits of the monitoring effect without the self-doubt that it induces. Yeah, I think part of that is also uh, related to the previous thing we talked about, about not tying exercise to weight loss mm -hmm. necessarily, right? Because you're not going to really see, you know, your biceps get Popeye style bigger uh, mm -hmm. with each, you know, bout of activity. So you shouldn't expect to see the scale moving, you know, dramatically yeah. on a weekly basis. It's the same kind of idea. But I, I think there's obviously pluses and minuses to, to that kind of intensive monitoring. Right. Yeah. So Go ahead. I was just going to move the conversation to uh, sort of a different topic, which is the people in our population that um, are not exercising, right? And, right? and those who, for a lot of different reasons, find it very challenging um, to incorporate exercise into their daily life. Um, so, I know the guidelines are intended for everyone, um, but some people have, some groups, I would say, have a harder time, uh, you know, incorporating that into their life than others. So are there specific um, groups that you think we should be targeting for the most benefit uh, for physical activity interventions? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, there are higher risk groups in the population. Um, we know that adolescent girls, are definitely uh, notoriously inactive. Mm. Um, we know that physical activity decreases throughout the lifespan. Uh, so certainly targeting older adults is, um, is a good thing. But really, I think what we've found is that you know, physical activity benefits really everyone. And the prevalence of inactivity is, is, is pervasive. You know, it's very high across all different socioeconomic, ethnic, and gender groups, that really it's a, it's very a, a, a far-reaching intervention um, and should be promoted in all groups, really. Do you see um, particular obstacles uh, to people starting or getting exercise in their daily lives? And if so, what do you think we can do about some of those obstacles? <laughs> well, you know, I think the, the most pervasive obstacle is just our drive. Um, as a nation and as a society to be more um, economical and to, to try to just be more efficient in everything we do. So essentially, you know, we've engineered physical activity out of our lives. Huh. You know, we have 
elevators and escalators everywhere. We have drive-through windows. You can stay in your car and buy everything you want. Uh, even in Louisiana, we have the drive-through dockery places. So you don't even have to get out of your car to get a dockery. <laughs> so, Seems you know, problematic. Yeah, I don't see the issue with that one. But, um, and everything we do now is on computers. Um, we have a drive towards increasingly sedentary occupations mm -hmm. over the last 60 years. And there's been some beautiful studies that have shown that, that the agricultural economy and the, the manufacturing, these modern intensity activities that we used to do, they're gone. Right. So we're fighting that environment when you want to put physical activity back in. You know, it's hard to find sidewalks on a lot of the streets around mm -hmm. here. Um, so you're fighting the automobile, you're, you're just fighting everything. So to turn back the clocks, would be a good thing, but I know we're not going to do that. So we have to figure out a way to engineer that physical activity back into people's lives. Um, and there's people looking at ways of doing that, but it's, it's going to be tough. Um, like I say, the, our whole economy, our whole society has been driving us in the other direction. Mm -hmm. So we have to somehow turn it around or get a way to get that activity back in there. Yeah, that's very important. I, w I was going to ask you about the the increase in desk jobs. I mean, I know for myself, um, you know, like I said, I get to go to the gym and work out, but during the day, I'm sitting in front of my computer for eight hours. And, um, you know, it, it's hard to think of how we can, uh, you know, and then you have to fit into your life scheduling to get, you know, you have to drive yourself to the gym and then you know, that's where you get your activity. But as you said, people, human beings used to just get that activity in their daily lives, getting from point A to point B. Um, you know, it's really hard to know what we can do about that. Um, obviously we can design cities a little differently. Uh, so bring the sidewalks back. I think that's something that I feel very strongly about. Um, but even that, you know, like I said, when I'm at my job, for eight hours, I'm sitting here. We have a sit to stand desk and that's wonderful, but I use it about 15 minutes a day. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, you probably don't have the answer to this because it's a societal change, but um, is go, I guess the question I'm kind of struggling to get to is, is going to the gym for this short amount of time, 150 or, or just walking for 150 to 300 minutes enough to counter the fact that we're sitting for almost the entirety of the rest of our day. Well, that's a big question that we, we addressed on the committee. And that's that exact thing. So if you work it out, you know, 150 divided by seven, you're looking at 20, 25 minutes a day of physical activity. Mm -hmm. Well, what about the other 23 and a half hours? Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's a hugely important issue. So there's been a number of studies now looking at sitting and sedentary behavior per se. And, and sedentary behavior is really defined as, you know, low-level activities that are done in the sitting or reclining posture. So it's really all about sitting, sitting, um, but not sitting on a, uh, you know, on a rowing machine or something like that. <laughs> you know, sitting at your desk, sitting watching TV. And so there's this emerging literature in the epidemiology, you know, showing about a 25% increase in risk, you know, if you spend a large fraction of your day uh, sitting at work or, or sitting for leisure. Um, so our new guidelines actually have integrated this information about sedentary behavior. Huh. Oh. And the evidence pretty clearly shows that, you know, sitting is bad for you, but if you're meeting the physical activity guidelines, mm -hmm. you know, the, the risk reduction associated with sitting is not quite as bad. Oh, okay. But if you're, if you're very active, like let's say an hour a day of moderate activity, mm -hmm. you can almost wipe out the effects of that. Sitting. That's what I was hoping you would say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's actually oh. really good to know. And I actually uh, had, have always been curious about that. Um, Wow, that's pretty fascinating, actually, if you think about it. So uh, what's really, to me, ironic is that you're almost saying that it really doesn't take that much time out of your day to, to get these health benefits. I mean, we're talking about a very little amount of time in your week, and you could be sitting for the whole rest of that week, and you're still going to get those, you know, that 70, 75% health 
benefit re risk reduction. Um, that's a pretty powerful message that I think, you know, we're struggling to get out to people. No, absolutely. It's a, it's a tough message. Uh, and it doesn't sound like much, but we're talking about, you know, it's really, you know, over an hour a day of dedicated physical activity. Um, and that's hard for a lot of people who they can't even do the 30 minute recommendation, try to get them to do an hour, an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. That gets uh, almost impossible for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but those that are out there and dedicated to it can certainly do that. Well, it's good to know. <laughs> At yeah. least it's out there. Yeah. Um, I, I think something you mentioned earlier that really caught my interest was this idea about the environment that you're in. Uh, you know, the drive-through windows you talked about, and I know there's been some really fascinating research on the built environment and how much of an impact that has on the physical activity people do, you know, with walking trails and sidewalks, etc. You know, I live in Buffalo right now, and Brian's in Chicago, which means for three quarters of the year, it's like the frozen tundra where we are. I know you're in Louisiana where you don't have cold necessarily, but you might have heat related weather right. challenges. So how much do you find in the literature about the environment modifying physical activity patterns? Yeah, certainly it's there. And um, there's like this inverse gradient. Um, there's a sweet spot really um, for maximal kind of physical activity participation. I forget what it is, it may be around 20 degrees Celsius or something like that, which um, is, is pretty good. It's around room temperature perhaps. <laughs> but certainly we see that gradient. In the south of the United States, we have some of the greatest physical inactivity rates in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. Um, and a lot of it has to do with, you know, a large fraction of our year, we're 100 degrees, 100% humidity. It's, it's very tough to get out and exercise. And having grown up in the north of uh, the country, um, I, I didn't see it quite as bad up there. Most people, well, at least when I grew up, we embraced the winter. We were out skiing and snowshoeing and uh, skating. We really enjoyed the winter. Uh, it didn't impact us too much. But I'm not too sure about the next generation, what's gonna right. happen. But. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you that I, I love skiing and all those outdoor activities, but I do find it impacts my daily, mm -hmm. you know, physical activity and step counts, you know, when the sidewalks are slippery or unshoveled, um, you know, certainly I'm middle aged. And so there I'm even at less risk than somebody who would be an older adult, let's say who actually might you know, slip and fall and, and really injure themselves. So it's just a, a fascinating topic about there's all these extraneous variables that are affecting your physical activity levels beyond, you know, your motivation, the time you have in your day. Um, so a lot of it is out of your control, these sort of meta societal issues that you, you mentioned. Absolutely. And yeah. we certainly have life events throughout the lifespan. You know, people's physical activity goes down once they have kids. Um, and, you know, as people get older, and the kids get out of the house, there are more opportunities to be physically active. So it really ebbs and flows. It's very much a, a personal issue. Um, and even the data on the environment, I'm still not 100% convinced because mm. most of it is cross-sectional mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. correlational. And we know that more active people, they, they move to the West Coast so they can be yes. more active. Ah, so selection bias. Yeah, it's not, it's not the fact that they're that the West Coast is making people active. Right. All the active people are moving there. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. it's, and the same with uh, different types of neighborhoods. You know, the some of them that, that have the, that are more walkable and have the sidewalks, they say that that makes people more active. Well, it could be that people who like that kind of stuff <laughs> are moving to those neighborhoods. Yeah. So it's more intrinsic. So we don't have those longitudinal prospective studies yet, really, that say, if you go into a neighborhood and change that environment, will it change people's activity? And so that's, yeah. that's, that's, we need that level of evidence. And I think also we'd be remiss, and I'm always sensitive um, to the issue of how socioeconomic status modifies all of these relationships. You know, the, the privilege and capacity to join a gym and move to a neighborhood that's safe to walk around and has sidewalks. You know, socioeconomic status also plays a tremendous role uh, in physical activity, I think. Is that what the literature shows as well? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 100% on there. And... 
you know, we have to keep thinking about that when we create physical activity interventions, right. that we don't want to further uh, increase these health disparities. Right. We, we have to really target the entire population and make it more equitable for those that can't be active, you know, to get them up to where they need to be. That's, so that's really a good, good issue. That I think it's, it's that way with a lot of different behaviors and a lot of different risk factors, but physical activity falls right in that group as well. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great point uh, to sort of wrap up on mm-hmm. um, because the underlying message from what we've talked about today is that most of us, almost all Americans, could benefit from more physical activity in their lives. And we recognize that it's hard to do so at some point. So I guess, uh, Peter, do you have any closing words uh, of wisdom or how we can uh, help people uh, you know, become more active in the new year and hopefully and beyond the new year? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, that's a tough question for an epidemiologist. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, there are evidence-based interventions out there. There's been several Cochrane reviews that have really shown us kind of what works. And I think now's the time to really start translating these into public health. Mm-hmm. And the, the new physical activity guidelines actually included an entire chapter on physical activity promotion. Oh, great. Which was, which was brand new. No one had ever done that before. So not only do the guidelines tell you, you know, how much activity you should be doing, there's an entire chapter telling you how to do it. And so mm-hmm. I think people need to look at that. Um, people who are in positions to, to uh, implement interventions just need to look for the best evidence and really start in, enabling that. That's a great point. And I think that what you said about, um, you know, instead of focusing just on the individual and getting individuals motivated, we have to change society and the infrastructure that we live in to promote these activities and make it more accessible, make it easier for us to do in our daily lives, I think is a really important point that you touched on. So thank you very much. Um, This has been a great conversation. I think this is a good point to end it on. So I'd like to thank Dr. Peter Ketz-Martzik for joining us on this episode and Dr. Haley Bannock for leading this conversation. We'd also like to thank Sue Bevan for producing the show. And before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which will be in June this year in Boston. It also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. And you can find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode.